Hello, dear listener. My name is Baron, Mage Master of Tilaria. This is the Magic the Gathering unofficial audiobooks podcast. Joining me is Master, or should I say, Captain Malzra. Once again, Captain Malzra. Okay, would you like me to say Urza? No, I'm not doing this. I refuse to partake in something so appalling. Urza, this isn't even canon. He's bringing life to you, Urza. Just do him this small favor. Does he honestly think I would shill some sort of storytelling mechanism for him? What does he even do? What is a Patreon, and why would any man or woman or person or child of artifice be interested in spending any reasonable amount of time and money? Urza, just tell them where to go. Where to go? Where are they going? Clicking their fingers as if they physically moved somewhere? You must be joking. Okay, well, I apologize, dear listeners. Master Malzra is in a mood. In a mood? Please kindly rate the podcast five stars if you have the ability to do so. Join the Patreon by finding the link in the show notes. And if you feel like joining the Discord, it too is in the show notes. Please enjoy our tale. Yes, it is our tale, and I don't know how this even qualifies as legitimate entertainment for any significant person of artifice, and for that matter, I don't even know if... Chapter 8 When most of the crew awoke the next morning, Joyra was already on deck. She had drawn aside to trade stories with Karn. Though fierce and formidable around other humans, Joyra laughed and spoke easily with the Gollum. They were an impressive pair, the wild woman and the silver man. Her flesh was as smooth and brown as the sandstone shoulders around the bay, and his as mirror-bright as the sea they had crossed. Karn told her of all the students and scholars he had rescued, and how he had searched late into the night for her allowing the refugee ship to leave only as the glimmer moon sank in the sea. Joyra told her own stories of rescue and loss. All of this passed without the long, awkward silences of the night before, as though not a moment had gone by between these two long-separated friends. They walked along the shore and reminisced, skipping stones in the choppy waves until the deck was teeming with crew and the smell of freshly brewed tea drew them back aboard. Joyra drank eagerly, burning her lip with the piping stuff. She smiled at Karn and said, there are certain drawbacks to being a wild woman, and among them are foregoing real tea from a porcelain cup. The crew broke their fast with a second feast, those going ashore knowing the meal would have to last them until they made camp at the center of the aisle. Joyra predicted with a caravan of fifty it would take the whole day to thread their way past the worst time rifts and through the mildest ones. Joyra's tone of gloom returned as she described to the crew the temporal distortions of the island. They resembled the physical topography after the blast. At the detonation point was a wide temporal basin, like a blast crater, where the explosion uniformly ripped away the natural flow of time. Near the edges of this slow time crater were a series of concentric rills of time, tightly packed fast zones. The center would be unreachable except for avenues off that radiated spoke-like from it and joined the outer island with the inner. Many of these avenues were deep slow time rents, though others allowed a gradual descent into the crater. Others still had admixed with the fast-time shells nearby to make bridges of normal time. Beyond these concentric fast-time rings were large, irregular regions of extreme time shift, many contiguous square miles of territory unreachable to those outside, sheer time plateaus and deep time canyons. 
In these areas, whole new ecologies had evolved and cultures with them. Bearing only the clothes on her back and a long walking staff, Joyra led a pack-laden parade of scholars and students up the winding forest paths between temporal canyons and plateaus. Urza followed just behind her. He carried a large wooden case with ornate inlays of brass and ivory. It looked terrifically heavy, but his strides were weightless, and his questions came easily despite the panting of others. Perhaps he had cast an enchantment that let his feet glide among the gorse, or perhaps microscopic machines did the walking for him. Baron came next, carrying the stowed tent that would hold him and Urza, as well as clanking pots and assortment of swaying parcels. Behind him, Karn carried the burden of ten men. Throughout the line, other smaller automata ambled beneath heavy packs. The rest of the company consisted of aging scholars and young students, at once eager and fearful about what lay ahead. Karn, come up here. I want you to see this, Joyra said. She gestured toward a wide, glaring, and desolate swamp filled with the ghost-gray corpses of drowned and burned-out trees. The water in it was black and seemed infinitely deep. Insects hung in static suspension above the mirror waters. Some were poised just before death, the goggle eyes and gaping mouths of fish stretching the surface tension below. I call this slate waters. Here, the fires from the original explosion went out only seven years ago, after drenching rains. Before then, a pillar of smoke rose above the spot. By my calculations, in slate waters, the equivalent of ten days have passed since the blast. Step in there, and you need a time machine to get back out. Karn stared at the spot. It reflected darkly in his hide. My time-traveling days are done. Master Molzer is intent on other pursuits. Not much needed these days. The words sounded at once relieved and disappointed. Joyra studied her old friend. Provisions hulked up from his massive shoulders. Don't worry, old friend. I need you. She patted his side and pivoted. Now look over on this side of the path. That's a temporal plateau. I call it the hives because of the domed mud huts that its residents built across it. She pointed to a region that was forever in twilight, the land sunk in a vast pall. Scattered forests of short, scrubby trees clung to the hillsides, a gray and torn fabric of woodlands that looked all the more spectral because of the blur of their wind-rattled leaves and rapidly growing boughs. Here and there, in clever patches among the stern woodland copses, rounded hovels took rapid shape, proliferating like chambers in a mud-dauber's nest until whole dim villages could be discerned in spots and slender footpaths marked the ground beneath them. The villagers themselves moved with unseeable speed. As quickly as a particular settlement would mound into being, it would dissolve away again, ephemeral as bubbles atop boiling water. Five of their generations are born and die during one of our years, Joyra said levelly to Urza, who had taken the occasion to stop and stare. Baron, coming up behind, asked breathlessly, Five generations of whom? There were no natives on this island. Joyra's eyes were keenly fastened on Urza's face. I can only assume these were students of the academy caught in extreme fast time, as unable to escape their rift as we are to enter it. They are fifty generations removed from your school. They have lived a thousand years of tribal history since then. Baron was stunned, silent for a moment. Then he said, They see us right now, don't they? The hour it will take us to march past their land will be four days of their time? We're statues to them? Yes, unreachable, inexplicable, nearly immobile statues, Joyra affirmed. They can hear us, too, but our speech is deep and long and meaningless, like whale song, haunting and otherworldly. They become a different race from us. Soon they'll be a different species. 
She began walking again, and the line of students and scholars stretched out behind her. There's an even more fearsome sight in another time plateau ahead. But first, paradise. All down the line, scholars and students traded intrigued looks and hunkered down beneath their burgeoning packs. Joyra led them up the meandering hillside, past stands of cypress and creeping vines on the left, and a great place of tumble-downs on the right. For some time, the hives of the mud and stick were still visible, boiling and receding among the trees. Eventually, the party reached a new place, a highland with rolling green embankments and thick forest growth. The native flora of Talaria thrived here on the bright hillsides. Fat, bold trees were green from root clusters to crowns. Vines like veinwork coiled along every stem. Broad leaves lay in a series of dense canopies above. This is a mild slow-time area where sunlight and rainwater are gently enhanced, where creatures and plants live in abundance, where the heat of the canopy is matched by the cool of the forest floor. The hills allow enough runoff to keep the land from becoming deluged, and the hollows where the water collects are deep and clear and cool. It is paradise. I call it angelwood after the fireflies that light it at night. Whenever I have grown exhausted from my cliffside vigil, I come here to swim and climb and breathe again. That is perhaps the best part, breathing again. Eyes all around the group turned hungrily toward the Garden of Delights. Sweat-dotted brows eased. Among the vast tree trunks, large, bright birds flew dreamily enough through curtains of light and shadow. Beneath them, water bounded down a sloping face of stone and emptied into a clear brown channel. After coiling among the forest's seeking roots, the waterway slid into a nearby vale, forming a deep, cool pool before spilling into another stream at the far side. Beneath the surface of the water, the silvery gleam of fish shone. "'Why didn't you make this your home?' one student asked, pushing brown hair back from her eyes. "'The game is plentiful, the nights are warm, the water is pure, and you'd live longer than anywhere else.' Joyra was grim. "'You can't live in paradise.' She set out again. The company behind her lingered, a few sipping on canteens, but most just standing and staring. One student made a point of scrawling a crude map on a piece of paper, apparently intent on returning to this spot when time allowed. Joyra led the group up toward a wide, level place where an outcrop of ancient granite had been worn down like a filed tooth. Aside from the eastern pinnacles, this summit was the highest point of the island. Its gray crown was scoured clean by the blast, dead trees lying in parallel lines all about the peak. Young trees sheltered by the fallen logs rose in the midst of the devastation, a future forest. From the top of the rock, the views were clear from the pinnacles in the east to Joyra's niche in the west. There, atop the worn-down stone, the company of fifty paused to catch breath and shake out weary legs. The intimate vistas of Angelwood were replaced by the panorama of what Joyra called the Giant's Pate. In the east, the sea was a quicksilver curtain streaming down from a white rising sun. New Talaria was a dark and tiny silhouette against it, crew resting about the deck in the quiet of morning. The shore was a beige ribbon, silky and coiling. Inland, forest and briar, marsh and meadow made shifting patterns of green and gray, shade and daylight. It was a verdant land. Not so the westward isle. Its distant shore was a bright orange pile of rankled rocks, among which Joyra's niche nestled. Closer to the giant's pate, the ruins of old Talaria lay. They were gray and blighted. The one-time logic of walls and paths was still obvious in the maze work of foundations, but most of the buildings had been razed by the blast. Here and there, a part of a structure remained, sometimes in gutted, unnatural towers with open sides and decrepit backbones of stone. Though not an actual crater, the slow-time field of old Talaria was noticeable in the bright shimmer of the air over those ruins and the water that lagged in cellars and leaning doorways. 
Nearby the glaring section that was Old Talaria was another district, a place of deep darkness and a literal canyon. It lay in the morning shadow of the giant's pate, but its gloom was intensified by the high, leaning walls of the canyon and the vast time shift within it. The floor of the space was indistinguishable, and some of the students whispered it was a crack right through to the underworld. Looks like a good place for ghosts, one said. If I were dead, I'd choose a home like that, another answered lightly. Looks like a scar in the world, ventured a third with awe. A bad scar, one that tried to close and heal, but only festered and grew deeper. You are more right than you imagine, Joyra said. That is a very deep chasm and a sheer fast-time precipice. But there is a bottom to it, and there are creatures trapped in it. Like the tribes in the hives? No, Joyra said flatly. Look there. You may not be able to see it while the giant's pate casts its shadows. Sometimes it can't be seen even in the height of midday, but there is a fortress down there. Urza's brow furrowed in concern. A fortress? Perhaps it is only kind of a commune, but what I have seen, it looks savage and braced against attack. What have you seen? Baron asked. Spiked battlements, for one, a causeway of suspension bridges between high guard towers, flying buttresses that look like they're fashioned of dragon bone, windows as black and smooth as onyx, fiendish adornments, and thick cast tiles of clay. I have the notion they would prefer to make everything of steel if they could make it, but iron is the best they have, and not much of it. It's taken many hours of distant observation to piece that much together. I would not suggest close scrutiny. I've seen harpoons fly from that space, spear deer, and drag them in. Baron blinked in confusion. This barbarous culture arose from refugees from the academy? Students of ours? Again, no, Joyra said. You remember that man, Carrick, whom you found with the broken leg? Whom you interrogated as a Phyrexian sleeper? The man I had led into the academy? Remember that he escaped an hour before the blast? He must have been trapped in that fast time gash. He and whatever Phyrexian negators he had summoned to Talaria. Through a two-story tall window of polished obsidian, Crick watched the new arrivals. They stood atop the gleaming peak at the height of the island, a summit always visible to Crick and his retainers here in the depths of the abyss. Joyra was among them. She seemed, in fact, to be leading them. She had been a canny foe during the century of his imprisonment in this time gash. She never entered range of the harpoon crews, and more's the pity. He had much to repay her for. Betrayal to Urza Planeswalker was chief among the offenses. Putting a harpoon through her gut and hauling her across the jagged lip of the chasm to burst like a fist-clutched skull, that would have been glad repayment of her debts. She probably still called him Carrick. She probably still thought of him as a golden-haired boy, but a hundred years had turned Carrick to Crick, had made the smooth-skinned Phyrexian sleeper into a hoary warrior. If there were some way to bring Joyra over alive, not masticated like the goat and deer carcasses they feasted on, Crick would at least consummate their love. That was her other great offense, her persistent virtue in the face of his advances. It was galling that flimsy chastity should stand against the might of Phyrexia. Of course, if he could drag her across whole, he himself could have escaped this abyss. It had taken the death of half his negator minions, twelve of the twenty-four, to finally convince Crick to suspend his escape attempts. Even so, with each new generation decanted, he sent one in ten out to seek escape, a tith to his eventual return to Talaria, to Dominaria. This 10% attrition was no great loss. He still commanded a mighty nation of 200 Phyrexians, 
They filled every corner of the chasm. Generations of them worked in the deep dank of the waters at the base of the canyon. They hatched, netted, and gutted the various species of blind scavenger fish that were their major diet. Other Phyrexians, for generations, drilled deep into the chasm walls in search of buried veins of obsidian and the basalt stones the palace was built of. Scant resources had been the only real limit of Crick's inventive genius. If he could make steel or power stones, his artifact creatures would have overrun the isle 80 years ago. As it was, what little iron the miners found was more precious than gold. It was constantly oiled with Phyrexian blood to prevent rust. An iron sword like Crick's was a kingmaker, made him unopposable in the arena and maintained his power. Thus, the miners who found scant veins of iron were essential to his power base, the figurative foot soldiers of his regime. By carefully distributing these slivers of iron among real foot soldiers, Crick controlled a private army engineered to be loyal only to him. These killers used draconian measures to ensure the compliance of all the others. Crick presided over the army and the nation because he had created both and was the smartest, strongest, and most vicious among all of them. To these native talents, the Phyrexian sleeper had added enhancements to himself of bone and steel and eventually even spawned tissue implants. He was indomitable in the arena. His once smooth shoulders were now adorned with tusks hollowed out to inject scorpion fish poison in anyone he fought. Similar spikes jutted from his elbows and knees. The spikes were back-barbed like arrows so that once they sunk into flesh, they ripped it out in great chunks. His torso was braced by a black steel frame that prevented his spine from being broken and allowed him to break the spines of others. He himself had wielded the cleaver that removed his outer two fingers of each hand, making room for more venom spikes. The century of imprisonment in the abyss had done much to perfect his form. Now, gazing through the thick, dark glass of his upper throne room, Crick saw the means by which he would at last escape his prison. The power of his old foe, Urza Planeswalker. It was a bitter pill for Master Molzra, Joyra could tell. The man stood there, gazing into that black jag in the ground. His eyes saw more than most eyes did. They gleamed with an acute, penetrating judgment. Surely they saw past the shrouding murk to the Phyrexian colony that lay within it. Surely Molzra peered into that black pile of basalt and obsidian to the wretched creature at the heart of it, malicious and brooding, growing a year in strength for every month outside. Carrick was the man. Even without preternatural sight, Joyra knew that. Of course, he was no man, but a monster wearing the skin of a man. She knew he was at the nexus of that vast infection and that he would be powerful now, perhaps the equal of Malzra himself, perhaps his superior. Karn's eyes, too, saw more than most. He drew Malzra, Baron, and Joyra aside from the others. It is no secret to any of you what I was made for, to travel down the throat of time. Perhaps I have found my new purpose here, to enter that place and destroy them. The suggestion was made with a mild, matter-of-fact tone, but in a voice like a myriad whisper of trees before a summer storm. A knowing glance passed between Malzra and Baron. The mage said through a grim smile, I seem to remember just such a journey from my study of arcane lore. There was once upon a time a planeswalker who went into Phyrexia to destroy it. He was armored much as you are, Khan, but was nearly destroyed in that attempt. Malzer nodded. It is a good analogy. What we have here is a pocket phyrexia and intellaria. His all-seeing eyes were suddenly hooded beneath angry brows. Joyra, you spoke last night of the children of fury I have left in my wake, the orphaned mistakes that have, in my absence, 
grown up to defy me, to hate me, to harry me and slay me if they can. I see now just how true your words are. He blinked and drew a deep breath, two actions that signaled a powerful shift in the mind of the man. Better not to create such foes than to be forever fighting them. Baron looked with admiration at him. The sun glinted from Malzra's lifted eyes as he marked its march across the sky. Already the sun begins its descent. Come, take us to Old Talaria, to a place where we can safely make camp, somewhere outside the slow time slop in the center of the blast, preferably on high ground, nearby, where time follows its normal course. A solemn look crossed Joyra's face. I know just the place. She turned, heading for a path down the giant's pate toward the decimated academy below. Squinting in tired amazement, the students and scholars on the hilltop watched her go. Many of them were worn out from staring into the impenetrable blackness of the Phyrexian Rift and exhausted from the nettling worry that the cleft awoke in them. They had unpacked meals of pressed bread and jerky. When Joyra marched on, they glanced a question at Master Malzra and Baron. The two men took their last survey of the spot and started after her. Flashing on the brow of the hill, Karn also set his feet to the path. With angry sighs, the students jammed their half-eaten lunches back into their packs, hauled the parcels to their shoulders, and stomped onward down the trail. Joyra took a path that had been carved out by her own feet during her rambles. It passed a number of other time rifts, the small and severe, some as narrow as an arm's breadth but a mile in length. Joyra called these the curtains of eternity because anyone who ventured into them would be instantly torn to pieces. There was no need to instruct the party to stay strictly to the path. Beyond loomed the labyrinth of riven buildings that had once been the Talarian Academy. The march line stilled to silence as they approached the necropolis. The older members of the company had lived in these gutted hulks and had friends who died in the cross-section towers and lay even now skeletal beneath the piles of cut stone. To the natural dread that came upon them all in descending into that dead place, there was added the drag of slow time on their hearts and lungs. To step onto those ravaged and rumble-strewn streets was to sink into a nightmare made real in stone and bone and ash. Eerily, the sun shone bright and merciless in that flagging place. Those who glanced up toward it saw the fiery ball fleeing visibly toward the horizon. During their tour of the old town, Joyra led the group to a particularly disturbing sight. It was the statue of a young man running, both feet hovered impossibly above the ground. His mouth was wide in despair, his eyes were clenched tight, his hands groped out madly. His white robes were lit with a diffuse orange glow that enwrapped him and rose into an onion-shaped dome over his head. The young man was ensconced in a pillar that shone with fiery light. Just ahead of him, floating still in air, was a heavy cloak, caught in the moment before descending to enfold him. Joyra watched the faces of Malzra, Baron, Karn, and the older students and scholars looking for recognition. They stared bleakly for some time, their minds unraveling the mystery before them. At last, Karn breathed the name. Teferi. Yes. He was caught in flames when the blast occurred. Only a moment of time has passed for him in these ten years. When I discovered him here seven years ago, I fetched a heavy cloak, soaked it in water, and flung it into the air to engulf him. In another few years, a split second of his time, he will be wrapped in it, his burning robes extinguished. Perhaps a few years later, he will tumble to the ground. Perhaps in ten years, he will see the new Talari and strive to reach it. Then, of course, he will be torn to pieces. Her face hardened. She gnawed at one lip. That damp cloak is all I can do for him. I've studied the time fissure, performed experiments, tried everything I could imagine, but he's caught and cannot be saved. Stunned silence followed this revelation. Fifty sets of eyes traced out the doomed figure, frozen in fire. 
unreachable, but only an arm's length away. At last, Malzra spoke words that comforted them all. The first area of study for our new academy will be techniques to rescue this young man. Joyra wore a grim expression as she turned away. She led onward at a stern pace. The young students, some only children of twelve or thirteen, followed close behind. Older marchers paused at Teferi's shrine, as some were already calling it. Master Malzra, Baron, and Karn themselves brought up the rear of the procession. The marchers felt their sunken spirits and slowed hearts rise again as they climbed the headlands on the southern verge of the ruins. Beyond lay a wide, level place covered with tall, dry grass. The parched blades made a familiar and soothing noise in the warm afternoon winds. Despite Joyra's steady pace, evening deepened across the hilltop by the time Malzra, Baron, and Karn reached the summit. There the master looked out with his piercing eyes. He marked the closeness of old Talaria, the curtains of eternity, and beyond it the Phyrexian Canyon where his foes, even then, multiplied. You were right, Joyra, he said simply. This is just the place. He walked to the pack of one of his young, tired hikers, drew a tent spike from the gear stowed there, and with the sheer force of his hand, drove it deep into the dry ground. Just here, we will build our new academy. I was bone-weary and soul-weary that first night when, by lantern light, we erected our tent city. We cleared fire circles, set stones to hem them in, gathered firewood and water for the evening, and sat down to dried meat, pressed bread, and little hot broth. I had been the one all along telling Urza he must return to Talaria, must rectify his past mistakes and embrace the children of Fury. But in glimpsing those children for the first time, whether the tribal folk of the hive, the unseeable Phyrexian hordes, and the gorge of the ghosts of the dead that almost palpably haunt the ruins of the academy, I fear I was perhaps wrong. Forgetting the past, fleeing the death it holds, shrugging off die wounds, this is the way mortals live. Yesterdays are supposed to remain dead. It's the gift of time. Each new generation is supposed to be born ignorant of the horrors that came before. How else can any of us live? And yet, Perhaps I was right after all. Urza is not mortal. He cannot afford to forget any more than time can afford to forget. The world is not large enough to let him go from mistake to mistake, leaving destruction in his path. He has to clean up after himself. In a way, his mania to return in time was a desire to remember, to own up to the past. He likely would have come to this conclusion with or without me. Of course, now that Urza has decided, we might as well assist his every endeavor, for... He won't change his mind for another millennium or so. I only hope after all this temporal fiddling I have the blessing of dying after a normal human span. Not before and certainly not after. Baron, Magemaster of Tilaria.